and welcome to Should I Stay or Should I Go? The podcast providing you with expert career insight and advice from senior people in the fields of insurance and risk management to help you make the right career decisions. Hosted by founder and managing partner of Key Strategies LLC, Mike Tenenbaum. Featuring interviews with those at the top of their game, each podcast explores topical issues coupled with specialist guidance on making your next move in the corporate risk management, insurance brokerage, and the insurance carrier sectors. A seasoned recruiter, Mike Tenenbaum has over 30 years of experience in sourcing top insurance and risk management talent for world-class Fortune 500 companies throughout the US. This experience makes your host the perfect person to kickstart the conversations that will give you the wisdom you need to decide, should I stay or should I go? I am joined this morning by Dave Arick, who is Assistant Treasurer, Global Risk Management, working for a big global company, International Paper, which is one of the world's leading producers of fiber-based packaging, pulp, and paper. Dave, welcome to the show. Morning, Mike. Uh, Thanks for having me. Great to have you, Dave. Uh, We've known each other a long time, as I keep saying on all these (laughs) things. So uh, it's great to be talking to people that that I've known a long time because uh, I feel like you know we're friends and and we know each other and I know your background you know mine absolutely so, yeah it's great so I thought we'd start by uh, just kind of going through your background a little bit uh, I believe you got your start in claims did you not I did I, I worked for uh, Nationwide Insurance back in the late '80s uh, when I was working my way through school in a regional claims office in Columbus Ohio and um, took a couple of INS classes to uh, you try to further my education in the area and um, somehow ended up being in it for a career. Imagine that. So would you say that you kind of fell into it a little bit? Yeah, like a lot of people, I absolutely did. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's, it's, uh, it's interesting. A number of people, probably the majority of the people who, um, who probably started, you know, more than 10 years ago, I would guess, fell into the field for the most part. And then uh, little by little, they started having more degree programs in insurance and risk management. And now you're seeing more and more people who actually intentionally come into the field. No, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so you were in claims for a bit and then you, uh, you got a job pretty quickly in uh, corporate risk management. Uh, what was your first job in risk management? Well, I was, uh, I was working in uh, credit card collections for a bank. And uh, as I was finishing my degree, there was an opportunity that came up in risk management downtown as part of corporate finance. And at the time, I was working on a finance degree and I thought I wanted to work in M&A. And I knew that the risk management position was in that same general vicinity. So I thought this would be an opportunity to get close and maybe work my way into M&A. And because I had the the time at Nationwide, I, I fit the the minimum requirements for this technical assistant job in risk management and the rest is history. <laughs> so what was that first job like? I know it was a while ago. It was. It was working for a bank that was very acquisitive and uh, had a group of people that were really supportive of me being the youngster in the group. And uh, I got thrown into a lot of things uh, early on that included doing the, uh, the M&A due diligence for the risk management department. So I got to touch a lot of the deals and we were buying, I don't know, 30, 40 banks a year. So that was really um, a big part of my job initially. It just really, really a great experience. I worked there for, I think about four years and um, we formed a captive and you know, I just got to work on a lot of things that are really early part of my career and um, just have to 
you know, continuously thank Julie Haynes, who was my boss at the time, for throwing me into the deep end and seeing how I would tread water. Well, you obviously uh, must have uh, figured out how to keep your head above water because uh, here you sit and, uh, and you know, looking at your background from there, you know, you were so you started out in an insurance company, then you went into financial services. So from there, you went into pharmaceutical, right? Right. Worked for Abbott Labs uh, in Chicago for, uh, for three years. And uh, like to tell people, we were there for the repeat of the three-peat for the Chicago Bulls at the time. So great experience, really global company. Uh, the bank I worked for previously was very domestic, and uh, Abbott Labs was about as global as it gets in a very different industry, as you said, pharmaceuticals and healthcare products. Was it a big adjustment for you going from financial services into pharma? It was because uh, I hadn't worked for a manufacturing company before. So first and foremost, uh, learning about manufacturing and you know, the different risks, both insurable and non-insurable, uh, but then also uh, dealing with the the global footprint of the company and learning about how things are done in other parts of the world. Uh, and then, you know, some of the unique aspects of, you know, pharmaceuticals and healthcare, you know, clinical trials and, you know, the product liability that comes along with some of the products that are made by these companies. So it was a very different experience. Yeah, and I would guess that, you know, from financial services where, you know, their biggest risk is a financial risk, mm -hmm. you know, so insur insurance risk probably pales in comparison. You go to pharma where, you know, something like product liability is probably the biggest risk they face. It's huge. Absolutely. So risk then probably has a whole new level of importance at a place like that. Yeah, I found that we, we worked with legal a lot more than what we did at the bank. Um, you know, the bank was a lot more, like you said, it was it was financial risk and some operational risk. But you know, with the in the healthcare world, it was you know, a lot more of the legal aspects of you know, how do drugs get approved and you know, how do you ensure clinical trials and well, how do clinical trials work with the, you know the different different phases and um, you know the different types of approval regimes in different countries and um, dealing with legal around. Um, you know, product liability defenses, and uh, it was very different, but really enjoyed it. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like it's very challenging in a number of different ways. Absolutely. That's great. So, uh, so from Abbott, you went to Emerson, right? I did. I moved to St. Louis and, um, you know, another you know, very global company. At the time, it was you know, expanding a lot into Asia and Mexico in an a lot of different industries. So the common thread with Abbott was manufacturing, but uh, you know Emerson probably had 50, 60 different divisions when I worked there and doing very, very different things. Um, some very engineering focused, some very much you know, widget focused, you know, making motors and ceiling fans and uh, garbage disposals and you know some very mundane household things, but also some serious product liability with things like craftsman tools and some other things that were really consumer focused. Others were more big business focused, you know, engineering solutions for oil and gas and uh, heavy process industry. And so learned a lot more about engineering and that aspect of risk to bolt onto the manufacturing that was common with Abbott. And did you find in these more manufacturing oriented jobs and, and, and obviously, you know, you went to GE after Emerson, so that's a whole another level as well. But were you finding that you were collaborating more with people in operations? You know, how deep into the manufacturing 
uh, operation part of the business did you get? At Emerson, we definitely dealt more with the operations people because it, it was more decentralized than Abbott by by a long stretch. So we would have to deal with the individual divisions and you know, maybe a, a common thread with both companies that got us in with operations was uh, working with, with FM Global predecessor companies at the time, Protection Mutual at Abbott and Allendale at uh, Emerson, where, you know, we've got people going out and doing engineering um, inspections and, you know, risk reviews. Uh, and then, you know, we would take those reports and go back to the operations people and talk to them about, you know, capital we felt they needed to spend for risk reduction or risk improvement. Yeah. So, uh, so that's another interesting challenge right there is, you know, balancing, you know, how much do you spend on uh, loss control type activities and, and what's the return on that investment? I, I have that conversation all the time with people. Oh, sure. So, uh, so you go to GE and, uh, you know, a monster size company, probably they have, uh, they probably have divisions that are bigger than each one of these other companies. Absolutely. And there was a fair amount of competition between Emerson Electric and General Electric. And so when I, when I left Emerson, you know, a lot of people talked about, you know, that I was leaving to go to the, you know, quote, other electric company and uh, said some other things that I won't, I won't uh, put on the, on the broadcast today, but it all in, all in good jest, I think, uh, generally speaking, but, uh, you know, GE was a whole different level, as you said, I mean, a huge company uh, in a lot of diverse areas, but, Going back to you know, things in common, huge healthcare business, um, a lot of the engineering type solutions that competed directly with Emerson, which was interesting. But then things like aircraft engines and a lot of you know, power and utility industry uh, solutions, you know, steam turbines and gas turbines and things like that. And just to name a few. And then you, you bolt onto that NBC and uh, you had a really different set of risks all under this GE umbrella. So when you work for a big conglomerate like that, you know, where you're, you're dealing with multiple industries, you know, it really kind of, I think, puts a spotlight on the fact that you have to be able to think very broadly as far as how you apply risk management to each one of those industries. And, you know, I'm always talking about this topic of, you know, when I'm working on a search, let's say in a manufacturing company, you know, my, my hiring manager client will always say to me, well, you know, bring me somebody with manufacturing experience. I really want someone who understands our industry. But here you're working for a company that has multiple industries and you still have to be effective and you are effective. So how does that happen? I don't know what the formula is, but certainly you do, you do have to kind of back your, your lens up a bit from what your normal focus would be. And you have to think about what is the end goal for that business? You know, are they consumer facing? Are they you know, business facing? Are they, you know, I guess, B2B versus B2C uh, in, you know, is it manufacturing? Is it intellectual property? Are they, you know, an end product or are they intermediate product? And, and you have to understand the industries that they're selling into and very different focus for each business. And if you go in talking to you know, the people at NBC about things that, you know, really don't apply to them, you lose credibility very quickly. And so you really had to do a lot of work to understand, you know, who your internal customer was and, you know, try to, as best you could, put yourself into their shoes and understand what things worry them and what things you think they should worry about that maybe they aren't. Um, because, you know, so many 
firms, you know, risk isn't really front of mind. They're thinking about, you know, how do we grow top line and bottom line? And so risk is something that, you know, hopefully we can introduce as professionals in a constructive way that you know, helps them achieve their goals. But think about, I talk about making risk aware decisions versus, you know, it's not about being risk averse or risk tolerance, just being risk aware as you go through your, your planning and your decision making. Yeah, risk aware, risk awareness, and, and risk tolerance are two, you know, key components, which we'll touch on in a couple moments. But I was thinking about, you know, when, when you you make the point about how if you don't know what you're talking about when you go into your meeting with senior management, then you lose credibility pretty quickly. So you do a lot of prep work, as you were saying, to to walk into that meeting so that you're an informed advisor. So how do you how do you develop that appreciation for the industry that you're that you're going to be advising on? You know, there's some key things that you would typically do if you were walking into a new uh, CFO of a new division. Wow, uh, there's a lot there, Mike. Um, I, you know, I mean, I think part of it is um, you know, thinking about your what peer relationships you have that maybe have that experience. What internal mentors do you have? You know, in my case, I was lucky. You know, Stacy Regan. You know, I was working for who had a lot of experience with GE. Uh, she really, you know, helped me think through, you know, what worked culturally within the company, um, what helped you gain traction with people, and what things could maybe derail that traction from occurring. You know, looking at your your industry partners, insurers, brokers, consultants, advisors that have that industry expertise. So, you know, in the case of say GE aircraft engines. You know, talking with uh, our broker and um, you know, some of the folks that had dealt with that industry that has its own specific issues, much like what we talked about with you know, pharmaceuticals and healthcare. Uh, there's a whole different regime around you know, product liability in the aviation industry. And you know, that's a, a big focus when your planes are flying around with hundreds of people on board. And you know, you've got just maybe two of those engines holding it in the air versus allowing it to not stay afloat. So I think it's just really trying to reach out and use whatever resources you can to do the learning. Um, If you've got historical files in the department, you know, spending some time, you know, getting your hands dirty, looking at historical information and understanding what loss history uh, is there or, you know, what uh, engineering issues have occurred in the past. And I think it's just really you know, kind of casting your your line out there and trying to find out what information you can in advance versus going in and asking a lot of naive or maybe superficial questions. You know, like like you said, I think you, you really have to come in prepared as best you can. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, you make a really good point, which, you know, I want to make sure that everybody really grasps in that, you know, you're not you're not going at this, you know, sort of on an island. You have to collaborate with people and you have to utilize your your partners you know, whether it's your brokers, your consultants, um, you know, other internal mentors, in your case, Stacey Regan, you know, was able to really help you steer clear of of trouble spots and, and understand the focus and priorities. But there are a lot of activities, I think, that take place to put you in a position to really understand the risk and the business that you're in. And I think that that, and my point really has always been, you're going to go through that same process, whether or not you have experience in that industry, because you're still going to talk to the key people in the company. You're still going to talk to the brokers and the consultants, and you're still going to want to do all of that same research, regardless of how how knowledgeable you may already be, right? Well, I mean, that's a great point. And I think um, going back to your statement about you know, searches where people are looking for 
industry experience. I think sometimes that experience puts blinders on you a little bit because you think you know what's going on and you've, you've got your approach because you think you've dealt with it before, but every company is different. So even, even though you might have experience in that industry, you don't have experience at that company. And so, you know, you have to be open-minded and, and do the legwork, whether you have that industry experience or not. And, and I think sometimes hiring managers get a little bit too enamored of people that have that specific industry experience when maybe somebody that doesn't come from your industry is going to ask better questions and they need to be able to do the job period, whether they have the industry experience or not. I don't want to discount that, but I think being from outside the industry sometimes gives you a different perspective and things that you learned in another industry really might apply really well in a different industry, but people haven't, they haven't looked for that skill set, maybe. Yeah, no, that, that's very true. And, and I think that, um, you know, this gets into another topic, which is, you know, when you are hiring someone, you know, there are people who tend to just have this, whether it's conscious or subconscious bias for, you know, people that are a lot like themselves. And they like to surround themselves with similar minded people. And you and I have, have talked about this topic actually many times. And, you know, I think there are other hiring managers who, you know, really like to surround themselves with people who think differently and who bring, you know, complementary skills and abilities to the table. Where do you fall on that, uh, on that line? I think I fall towards the latter. I mean, I think when we talk about diversity in the workplace, you know, there, there's the kind of the common threads that everyone looks for. But to me, I, I think having people with different backgrounds and who think differently and approach issues in a different way, as long as you can mesh the styles together and collaborate, then I think it's, I think it's great to have people that don't think like you. And I think to me, that ends up providing a, a much more vibrant and effective workplace. If you've got people that are you know, bringing those different skill sets and experiences to, to play into play. And, uh, you know, to me, that's, that's better than having a, you know, a bunch of people that are sort of the lemmings and you don't really get diverse ideas or, diverse solutions to issues because you all think about it the same way. Yeah, no, that's that's great. That's great. I mean, I, I do think that a lot more people these days are, are realizing the benefit of bringing people who come from various types of backgrounds. So I feel like progress is being made that way. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see how things develop there. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, as you've uh, as you've gone through your different roles, you've picked up, you know, different insights along the way. I'm curious, you know, as a, uh, as a senior level risk professional, if you, if you were thinking back to, you know, your um, younger self, um, what you thought risk management was versus what it actually is, what do you wish you would have known back then? And, and what, what did you realize about risk management that you didn't realize back then? Well, I don't know if we have enough time for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. There's a lot in there, Mike. I think that you know, a couple of things. One, something I try to reinforce with with people today that I probably didn't do enough early on, but I, I learned, I'll say, uh, early mid-career. It's really important if you're buying the insurance as part of your risk management role that you need to read every contract policy that you can get your hands on, whether it's for your firm or just you know, generally available in the industry. And really be a technician. You can't wholly outsource that role to your brokers or 
even you know your trusted insurers, if you have direct relationships, you need to be the person that people go to with questions about coverage. And I think that's part of what helps you build credibility internally. So you you know when your uh, in-house attorneys call you with a question, you know the answers. You don't have to you don't have to put them off by saying you know I need to go ask my broker and I'll get back to you. I mean you have to do that occasionally, but I, I think that's something that I. I wish I had done early on. And and I think the other part is, um, you know, this perception that risk management was really about the insurance and some companies, it has been very insurance centric and others, you know, there's the broader, you know, outside of managing insurance purchases and budgets that really falls into the risk management role, whether it's, you know, business continuity or health and safety or crisis management. And those things to me are a lot more interesting in are really what the what should be within the definition of a risk management role than you know, just doing the insurance stuff. So yeah, you make a couple of really good points there. It sounds like as you're developing, you know, your career and and your expertise, you really need to understand coverage. Mm-hmm. You really need to understand the business and how the coverage gets applied. That's sort of like a baseline to build mm-hmm. off of, right? Absolutely. And and then you know, so if uh, you know. A general counsel or, uh, you know, someone else in senior management comes to you about a situation, you know, you know, pretty much off the top of your head. It doesn't mean that you can't do a little more research as well and, and maybe check your facts or, or get some reinforcement behind your opinion. But, you know, to to really understand the coverage right off the top is probably extremely valuable to you. I, I think it helps build a tremendous amount of credibility when you have that expertise. And so then... You know, as you get further along in your career, to me, uh, I'm noticing that there's a bit of a shift from being the technical insurance technician to being more of the strategic advisor. And I'm wondering, you know, uh, at what point do you recall in your career where you where you really started making that shift? I go back to my time at Emerson and working with a lot of really smart engineering people who were doing really complex contracts. And, you know, I'll say oil and gas and process industry type customers with huge exposures. You think about, you know, oil refineries and, you know, offshore oil rigs and, you know, really complex industries. And um, a lot of the contract conversations that prior to that were just about, can I be an additional insured, a wave segregation? I mean, they're talking about a lot of risk shifting and risk allocation and contracts that had nothing to do with insurance. And I was really happy to be part of those conversations and I could apply what things I thought were insured or insurable. But beyond that, I learned a lot about things that they were concerned about that had nothing to do with insurance. You know, things that, you know, if the if the solution didn't work properly, you know, what was the warranty or the indemnification? And, you know, looking at limitations of liability and things like that. And to me, that's where it got really fun because the numbers are so much bigger than just what's insurable. And the exposure and the risk to a, a contract or a product or a business is way beyond the insurance stuff and and way beyond what you could insure possibly. So that's where, to me, it really started to feel like risk management. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, you know, you're really learning to think like a business person is what it sounds like. 
Yeah, absolutely. But but still with the lens of what what risk enters into this negotiation? You know, do we have a way to kind of build that build that pricing to reflect the amount of risk that was being taken on by the company? And you know, if we couldn't, were there other contractual provisions that could limit the risk or shift it to somebody else appropriately? And it was just fascinating to me. Yeah, it sounds it. It sounds it. So, you know, um, the other thing I realized, by the way, about risk management when I first started recruiting in risk management many years ago was that in order to be a good risk manager, you really need to understand the entire business that you're working in. So you really had to know all the different components and and aspects of the business, which, you know, a lot of other corporate roles don't necessarily afford you that opportunity. Right. And to me, that's one of the things that makes risk management such an attractive career choice. And as you said earlier, there are people that actually go to school for it now and, you know, go straight into, you know, risk management or the insurance industry out of school. And I love the variety of things that, you know, risk management gets to be involved in and, you know, whether it's legal operations, health and safety. uh, I mean, you're dealing with lots of parts of the company. I mean, you're dealing with financial people, you're dealing with operations people, and you see, I think, a lot broader cross-section of the whole firm than a lot of other career paths allow you to uh, to access. And and I uh, I can also say that, you know, students in, in school, you know, even if they're going to school for risk management, I don't know that they really have a full appreciation for that yet. But one of the most valuable things that has been happening is, you know, maybe it's because of the sort of the the changing of the demographics in the field with a lot of the retirements coming up and uh, with baby boomers and such. So there's a lot more opportunity now for people coming out of school in the field of insurance and risk management. So they're getting more internships and such. But, you know, I just don't think anyone has a clue how broad this role could really be. So there's probably uh, there's going to be a concerted effort throughout the industry to really promote the field. And, and, and I think you know, if anyone in, in at the at the very junior level has the opportunity to go back to school and talk about this, or even at the more senior level, I think it's it's hugely valuable to students as well as to the industry. So, you know, moving on from there, I'm curious about, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic, or hopefully we're not in the middle anymore, but, you know, we, uh, we, we're starting to see the light at the end of, of the tunnel. You know, states are opening up, companies are opening up. And, uh, and I'm wondering, you know, um, what's it like now being the risk management leader of a global organization where admittedly, when you're looking at a company that does business throughout the world, each area of the world may be affected by this pandemic differently at different points. So how does that affect what you do and, and, and how you manage this? That's a great question. Uh, you know, for, for us, you know, I feel fortunate that we have a, a large uh, environment health and safety group and, you know, they're able to really look at the, you know, kind of the different, government requirements around keeping our people safe, where and how we can work uh, safely in different countries. Uh, and, and within some countries, you know, city to city, state to state, the requirements might be different. But, you know, the, the number one goal is, you know, how do we keep people safe? And if we can't, if we can't, if we don't feel we can keep people safe and make the products that we make, 
then we're not going to have people go to work. We're going to we're going to sit people down at their homes if we need to. And and that's what we've done with our corporate staff group where we have to work closely together. We're working remotely here in the states for the at least the the foreseeable future uh, until we feel that it's safe to return to the workplace in some form or fashion. From a risk standpoint, you know, I also feel very proud of IP that you know, we've had a you know, I'd say a, a big investment in business continuity for 10 plus years. And while we didn't necessarily put our plans in place thinking that we'd have the pandemic that we're dealing with now, uh, our plans worked really well. And the investment has really borne fruit for us because we were prepared for a lot of different scenarios. And I think we flipped the switch pretty quickly. And all these plans that we've tested and retested and done tabletop exercises over the years, uh, they worked pretty darn well. And uh, so I'm really proud that IP made that investment. And I think as we look back on this, you know, sometime down the road, a lot of companies are going to realize that they should have done more and they should have had business continuity plans that were pretty resilient and ready for a lot of different scenarios and that were tested and effective instead of learning on the fly when you've you know, got a crisis staring you down. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I think a very fair point. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. They used to say about risk management, you know, no one really understands the full value of risk management until something bad happens. Mm-hmm. And then you get to see if, if all your plans paid off. And, you know, it's a shame that you have to have something like this prove the point, but it certainly, you know, has teed it up for risk management to really demonstrate their value. The other thing that I was thinking about is, you know, one of the the key goals of a risk manager is to really get more time with senior management and and to more to have more exposure with the C-suite. Different people I talk to have different levels of engagement with the C-suite. And I'm wondering how something like this pandemic has affected the visibility into the C-suite. Is this, are you, would you say you have more regular contact with the C-suite? Is there more interest in, in risk management now as a result of this? I don't know if it's a, a settled point yet. I hope that there will be more conversation about risk and how does risk management play into strategic planning and how we run the business going forward. But I I think the jury's still out on what what it will look like because we're still, I think we're still in sort of a tactical mode of, yeah, how do we keep the business running during a very dynamic, daily changing pandemic? And um yeah, we don't really know. You know. We talk about what the new normal will be after this. I don't know if we know from a risk standpoint what that's going to be, but my hope is that we have more opportunity to to interact with management uh, at senior levels and that we can do it in a, in a value-added way. I don't seek out time with senior management just to just to be there. I think we need to be thoughtful about the many things that are on the plates of senior leadership and make sure that whatever we're thinking about, that it's important enough to, to take their time. And, and I, I'm hopeful that, you know, as a result of, you know, the pandemic we're all dealing with today, that we'll be more front and center in, in like I said, in a value added way, hopefully. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, you know, um, one point that you sort of mentioned, which I want to really highlight is this idea of, you know, as an employee, at whatever level you're at, the concept of really understanding what's 
driving and maybe what's stressing your your senior leadership, whether it's, you know, your immediate leadership, your immediate manager or their manager. You know, I think it's 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 very, very important to really understand what kinds of issues people are challenged with above you so that you can understand how you can help them. And, you know, sometimes people have all kinds of pressure on them that you would just never realize if you didn't ask a question or if you didn't look around more and pay attention to more of the signals. And, you know, I get to see this as, as a recruiter, you know, when I'm talking to hiring managers, you know, I hear a lot about the stress that they're facing. And I actually like to ask them more about what challenges they're facing, what their goals are, and what they're really trying to accomplish with this hire. And, you know, I get them to, to really think about it more and, and to articulate it more because then I trans, translate that into what kinds of skills and abilities would the person they want to hire need to have in order to help them with that. And it's, it makes for, for me, at least a very interesting process to go through. And I think for the people I deal with, they probably uh, think about things in a much broader way. But, you know, um, I'm just recalling uh, conversations I've had with, with Stacey Regan over the years about this exact point. And, you know, really when you think about hiring, in a broader way in terms of what goals and objectives are you trying to accomplish beyond just what it says in a job description. Hmm. I think you, you can really make a much better hire. With that in mind, the other question I, I had for you before we go, because we're, we're getting on uh, 35 minutes here, you're working from home, your team is working from home, as you said. What's that like in terms of communicating and staying in touch with your team? And uh, how does that affect the level of engagement that people are having with each other from your observation? Well. We're still learning every day how to be better and more effective as we work remotely. You know, the technology tools make it a lot simpler and a lot easier, more straightforward than probably even five years ago. So I think it requires a little more deliberation, a little more uh, intentional reaching out to people. You know, you can't just walk down the hallway and say hi to people uh, or you, know, you see which office lights are on or off. You you have to intentionally go into whatever app where you can see who's online and you know, reach out to them, see how their day is going. I find that's probably the biggest challenge is, you know, we're all busy, but, you know, as a manager trying to make time to reach out to people and to see how things are going and do they have what they need. And we've done a couple of WebEx calls together. So we get the whole department on and with cameras on and, talk to each other about how things are going. And, you know, we've done that a couple of times, you know, over the last several weeks. And we just have to find ways to, uh, you know, creatively keep some cohesion and camaraderie together, even though we're in our, in our homes in different places. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's a challenge for everyone. And uh, it's interesting to me to hear how you're doing it and how everybody else is doing it. I will say that you're absolutely right. That the, the, I guess the reach outs have to be more intentional you have to make more of an effort. You know, it's like I, I, I have a son who lives in uh, Warsaw, Poland right now. And when he was moving over there, I said, you know, it's going to be very easy to get caught up in your little world out there and forget about your family back home. But, you know, uh, as your father, uh, it would be nice if you uh, made, you know, a little bit more of an effort to stay in touch with not only, you know, your parents, but also with, you know, your extended family because everyone's busy and it's going to take more effort. And certainly this is a great example of that as well. Mm. So, so Dave, this has been great insight that you're sharing. And I think we can go on and on about a, a lot of other things. I do appreciate your time and, and thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Uh, and again, I appreciate the invitation and um, 
would be happy to have the conversation again down the road. Awesome. Well, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I will call on you for that. So, no worries. Uh, all right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Should I Stay or Should I Go? Brought to you by Key Strategies LLC, the US insurance and risk management recruitment specialists. If you like the show, please be sure to subscribe, like, and leave reviews. Every time you do, it helps others find the show. And if you have any specific career-related questions, please post them or send an email directly to Mike at mtenenbaum at keystrategies.com. He may even answer your question on the show. When you subscribe, you'll also get notifications of when the next episode is available. Hope you join us next time.